Turn, please, to John 3, 16. And in the Pew Bible, you will find that on page 1223. John 3, 16, as we pick up our expositional study in the Gospel of John. John 3, 16, page 1223. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. I think we will agree that this is the most well-known and most quoted verse in Scripture. It is most often spoken in the world's pulpits, and it is not unusual to see a banner lifted up at a sporting event that proclaims John 3, 16. And the reason it is so often quoted is because it encapsulates in one verse the good news of Jesus Christ. Because of God's great love, he gave us his son, and whoever believes in him will have eternal life. Because this verse does encapsulate the gospel message in one verse, it so easily lends itself to being a standalone verse, meaning it can be easily quoted in order to quickly and clearly present the gospel message. But while it can be quoted by itself, I think we will all agree that, is, that as is the case with all scripture, it is best understood as it is considered in its larger context. Notice the first word of verse 16. It is the word for. For God so loved the world that he gave. When a sentence begins with the word for, that is a signal that what is about to be said is going to offer a further explanation about what has been previously said. And because we are examining this passage in its larger context, we know exactly what has come before in this verse. Jesus has been instructing a man named Nicodemus about the true way to heaven and the kingdom of God. As a Pharisee, Nicodemus believed that his place in heaven needed to be earned by his good works and his strict adherence to the law. But Jesus has explained the truth, the true way of salvation, that salvation is by grace, through faith, and not by works. The issue of grace was addressed when God said, Jesus said, you must be born again and from above. This new spiritual birth is not something we can do, but something that must be done by God, by God's Holy Spirit. Jesus explained the work of the Holy Spirit by means of an analogy. He compared the movement of the Holy Spirit to the wind. We cannot control the wind and neither can we control the Holy Spirit. 
The Spirit of God moves where it wishes. But when it does move, we can see the Holy Spirit's effects just as we can see the wind's effects. Because when the Holy Spirit moves, the Holy Spirit brings new birth, a new spiritual birth. The issue of being saved through faith was addressed when Jesus used a second analogy. He spoke of an event from Israel's past. During the days of the Exodus, when the Israelites were going through the wilderness, the Israelites were being bitten by poisonous snakes and died. And so God told Moses to make a bronze symbol and lift it up, such that when the people looked at the symbol and they, they confessed their sin and looked to God, they would be healed. Jesus said that in a similar way, the Son of Man must be lifted up. And this lifting up needed to occur in two ways. It was a must that he should be lifted up on the cross because it was a divine imperative. It was part of God's plan. He must be lifted up on the cross. And secondly, he needs to also be lifted up in the sense of exalted. He needs to be lifted up in our hearts as we look to him in faith so that we may have the forgiveness of that poison called sin. Therefore, by the use of these two illustrations, Jesus has now told us the how of salvation. What is the how of salvation? Salvation is by grace, through faith, and not of works. And so after explaining the how of salvation, in the verses we will examine today, the subject becomes the why of salvation. Why did God, in the person of Jesus Christ, come down from heaven? Why did Jesus leave his heavenly throne in order to die a painful and humiliating death on a Roman cross? That is explained in the opening words of verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Why did Christ come to die? Because God so loved the world. As we are told why the Father sent his Son, we see an amplification. It is not just the case that God loved the world. He so loved the world. We are seeing the enormity and the wideness of God's love. And as we continue in this verse, our Lord explains the magnitude of the Father's love. We are told that God so loved what? He so loved the world. Now here's an important point for us to consider. There were, in the days of Jesus, no Jewish writings, no Jewish teachings, including writings where the rabbis explain the Torah, which speak of God's love for the world. The rabbis didn't speak of God's love for the world. As Jesus speaks of God loving the world, 
This is effectively a divine correction. The Old Testament does indeed give clear evidence that God loves the world, but the rabbis of the day, the rabbis of the day disregarded, seem to have disregarded the magnitude and wideness of God's love. Now, the Jewish people of the first century, especially their rabbis, they were sure that God loved Israel. They were God's chosen people. They are still God's chosen people. The Jews were convinced that the Messiah was going to bring them, Israel, all of God's blessings while bringing judgment, his divine wrath, on the nations, that is, the Gentiles. So the, the people of Israel seemingly forgot, perhaps intentionally so, a key promise that, was, that God gave to Abraham. What is that promise? We heard it earlier. In the Abrahamic covenant, God said this to Abraham, through you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Meaning, through Abraham and his seed line, that is the line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, through this line, God would bring the Messiah. And God's Messiah would bring salvation to all the families of the earth. God would bring salvation, not just for Israel, but to every tribe and nation. And why? For God so loved the world. It needs to be said that this does not teach universalism in the sense that everyone will be saved. Because even though God loved the world, doesn't mean everyone in the world will be saved and see heaven. As we saw in verse 5, no one will see heaven unless they are born again and from above and exalt Christ in their hearts, meaning put their faith in him. And it is this second component, the faith component, of exalting Christ that is further explained when Jesus says, whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. And so while God does love the world, meaning his, deep is, his love is so deep and so wide that he is going to rescue people from every tribe and nation, it does not necessarily mean everyone will be saved. Instead, this is a corrective reminder that God loved the world so much he would rescue, he would save everyone who believes. As we are told what God gave, it is important that we take another look at how God the Son is identified. Jesus is identified as the only begotten Son. We saw Jesus identified this way in the prologue, the, the introduction that is, is at the beginning of uh, John's Gospel. And since it is repeated here in the most well-known, most quoted verse of the Bible, I think it's important that we review this word begotten, his only begotten Son. 
The New King James, which is the Bible in the pew, the New King James retains the traditional rendering that was first offered by the original King James. And frankly, it is not the best translation. That is because the word begotten gives the impression of a new generation. For example, when we read that Abraham begot Isaac and Isaac begot Jacob, it indicates a new generation. But John made it abundantly clear in the very first of his gospel that God the Son was not a new generation. God the Son has always existed from eternity past. John 1.1 says this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And so Christ has always existed from eternity past. And so he is not begotten in a sense of a new generation. The Greek word that is used here and translated for us as begotten, at least in the New King James, is the word monogenes, monogenes. If our author John wanted to indicate that Jesus was begotten, meaning he's part of a new generation, he would have used the word geneo. It is where we get the word generate. But John doesn't use geneo, generate. It's not a new generation. John uses instead the word monogenes. That's two words stuck together. What does the word mono mean? One. The word genus is a word we'll also recognize. This word genus or genus refers to something according to its kind. For example, when biologists want to categorize the animal kingdom with a set of different hierarchies, one of those classifications is a genus. And so the word monogenus means one of a kind. One of a kind. That is why some English translations do not use the word begotten, but render the Greek as God gave his one and only son. I'll suggest that the best translation would be this. For God so loved the world that he gave his one-of-a-kind son. God so loved the world that he gave his one-of-a-kind son. The purpose of this phrase is not to speak of Christ's origin because he has no origin. He has existed from eternity past. Instead, the purpose of this statement is to emphasize the Son's uniqueness, Christ's uniqueness. He is the one and only Son of God. There are none like him. And the reason this is so important is expressed with extreme clarity when the Apostle Peter declares in Acts chapter 4 about the uniqueness of Christ. Salvation is found in no one else. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven by which we may be saved. And again, the uniqueness of Christ is emphasized by Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 2. 
where it says this, there is only one mediator between God and man. As we quote scripture, which repeatedly and emphatically makes clear that believing in Jesus is the only way to heaven, that automatically raises objections from the unbelieving world. The objection is that the teaching of Christians that Jesus is the only way to heaven, well, they say, that's narrow-minded. That's discriminatory. Do you mean to say, Mr. Preacher, that those who look to Muhammad or, or to Buddha will not see eternal life? Well, it's not me who says that. But the only one who has risen from the grave and defeated death. He's the one who says this. And because Jesus has proved himself victorious over the grave, only he is uniquely qualified to show us the way of how to defeat death. There are none like him. Jesus says of himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, Jesus says. Nevertheless, there are many who will falsely claim that there are alternatives, that there are many paths to heaven. While others may claim to know a way to heaven, only Christ can show the way because only he has come from God and only he is God. He is trustworthy and there are none like him. In Matthew 7.13, Jesus invites us. He invites you. Enter through the narrow gate with the understanding that he is that narrow gate. It is only through faith in Christ that we can enter heaven. But we'll ask, well, what about those who take a different path? Well, Jesus answers that question. He says, wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. There are many paths that seem right to man, but in the end they lead to destruction. They seem right because man's pridefulness causes him to believe that he can earn his way into heaven. No, I'm going to do it myself. I'm going to be the best person I can be, and God's going to reward me with heaven. But in truth, salvation is by grace through faith and not by works. And for those who do believe in him, there is a miraculous promise. Whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. There is so much that we can say about this promise of eternal life. It is the greatest gift that man has ever been given. But I think this morning I will focus on just one aspect of eternal life, which I also think is its most important aspect. The most important thing about eternal life is not its quantity, but its quality. Tell someone who is living now in a war-torn 
part of the world where they face violence and starvation every day. Tell that person of eternal life and they might say, no thanks, I don't want to live like this forever. Tell someone who lives in severe and chronic pain of eternal life and they might say, no thank you, I don't want to live like this forever in this chronic pain. But praise God, when Jesus speaks of eternal life, what he speaks of bringing is not just measured in quantity, but in quality. That is why passages like Revelation chapter 21 that speak of the eternal state for believers is so important, where it says, God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Amen. In the next verse, verse 17, this verse also continues to answer the question, why did God send his one-of-a-kind son to us? Verse 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Like the previous verse, this verse also begins with the word for. That signals that there's a further explanation as to why God sent his son. This verse continues to elaborate a key point in the last verse. God sent his son. Why? Because God so loved the world. And because of his great love, Jesus says, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. A clarification needs to be made here. Later in John's gospel, Jesus will seemingly contradict this statement. In John chapter 9, Jesus will say this, It is for judgment I have come into the world. And so how do we square those two seemingly opposite statements? Here's how. When we're told here in verse 17 that God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, that does not mean that he will not condemn. There is a judgment to come. When Christ comes again at his second coming, he will judge the whole world, every human being both the living and the dead. But as this verse, verse 17, speaks of his first coming, it emphasizes that he has not come for his first coming to condemn the world. He has come what? To save the world. Every individual from every tribe and nation, that is, whosoever should believe. It is this distinction between those who believe and those who do not believe, that the next verse, verse 18, now focuses. If we look at verse 18, Jesus says this, He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already 
because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. That is the unique, one and only Son of God. This verse describes two opposite conditions, believing or not believing. Listen, ultimately, that is all that matters. This is the most important issue. It is the most important question. It is the most important decision. Have you believed or have you not believed? For those who have believed, Jesus says, he who believes in him is not condemned. There is no surprise here, since we've just been told that Jesus has come from heaven to save those who believe. That is why the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 8, there is now no condemnation, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But for those who do not believe, Jesus makes an unexpected and frightening statement. The second part of the verse warns, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the one and only Son of God. While there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, the unbeliever, Jesus says, is condemned already. Now hearing that frightening news may cause us to ask a question. If someone does not believe now, at this moment, does that mean they are condemned already, meaning they have no future hope, no future chance of heaven? I would suggest that is not the case. It is never too late to believe. As long as God gives us life and breath, there is still time for us to call upon the name of the Lord. Many of us, myself included, I spent years in disbelief, but then, the, but then the Spirit moved, and I responded to his call and put my faith in Christ and Christ alone. But if this is the case, how then should we understand the saying that those who do not believe are condemned already? I submit that without faith in Christ, condemnation is the default position. It is the starting position of every human being. Because we are all sinners, sinners by nature and sinners by deed, our sin makes us guilty before God. And therefore, because we are guilty, we stand condemned. The Bible tells us, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The Bible says there is no one, no one who is good, not even one. And so, because we are guilty and we stand condemned, we have only one hope. We need a Savior. A Savior who can forgive us of our sin and rescue us from the penalty that we deserve. And that is precisely what Christ did. He took our sin upon himself and died for our sin. He took our place 
and by his death on the cross paid the penalty with his blood for our sin, such that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. That, of course, is the good news. But here's the tragic bad news. The vast majority of mankind will not call upon the name of the Lord. How many people, including our own friends and family, have heard John 3.16, have seen it broadcast at football games, and yet, even with the promise of eternal life, will not believe? Why? That is the subject of the next verse. Verse 19, if we look there. And this is the condemnation, the NIV has, and this is the verdict. That the light has come into the world, and men loved darkness rather than light. Who's the light? Christ is the light. Men loved darkness rather than the light, because their deeds were evil. Verse 20. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth and comes to the light, that his deeds may be clearly seen, that they have been done in God. These verses return to a crucial theme that was introduced in the introductory prologue. And here is that theme. There is a spiritual battle that is being waged between the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of God. There is a spiritual battle being waged. And this conflict is described by using the contrasting imagery of light and darkness. This fallen world, this is the dominion of darkness and of death. While God's kingdom That is the dominion of light and of life. As we examine these two contrasting kingdoms, let's bear in mind why our world is in such chaos. It is not the lack of education. It is sin. It is not the lack of money. It is sin. It is because, as the Bible says, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world. It is because this world is currently being led by who? The prince of darkness. The Bible calls Satan the ruler of this world. But the father sent his son to rescue us from this present darkness. And yet, even though it says at verse 19, light has come into the world, Christ has come into the world, we are told why so many refuse to believe. It is because, as Jesus says at verse 19, men loved darkness rather than light. That is a shocking, yet revealing statement regarding regarding the depravity of man. Mankind loves darkness. We don't tolerate darkness. We don't think about darkness. We love the darkness. 
Jesus says. That is, the unsaved man loves the darkness. Now compare that to what was said earlier about God. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. So here it is. God loves the world, sends his son. What does mankind love? Darkness. And how great is the Father's love? Romans 5.8 says this. God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That is how much he loved us. While we were still in our sins, he died for us. And so while Jesus loves us so much that he was willing to suffer a brutal death so that we could live, he died so that we could live, what does man love? He loves the darkness. He loves the darkness rather than the light. Man prefers the darkness of this world compared to the light of Christ. And why? Well, that too is explained. Because, as Jesus says at the end of 19, their deeds were evil. Evil. When we hear the word evil, we generally think of the most heinous of crimes, don't we? We might think of the mass murderer who has no remorse for his crimes, may even celebrate his deed. We say that person is pure evil. But listen, in this context, when Jesus speaks of evil, that is not limited to the, to the most heinous of crimes. Instead, evil speaks of anything that is a done apart from Christ. Remember, there are only two kingdoms. There's the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of God. And so for those who are not part of Christ's kingdom and are part of this world, anything that is done, it is not done for Christ. And therefore, since it is not done for Christ, it is not done for its glory, for his glory, that deed is evil. Does that make sense? You are not living in his kingdom. You are not doing his work. You are not bringing glory to him. Whatever you do is not for his glory. The only other option is evil. Let's look please at verse 20. For everyone practicing evil, that is not living for Christ, but they're living doing their own thing, that person hates the light and does not come to the light. Why? Lest his deeds should be exposed. Notice the word hates. That's a strong word. I remember Dawn's mother one time telling Dawn, don't use that word hates. That's a bad word. That's such, that's such a strong word. Like evil. That's a strong word, isn't it? Evil's a strong word. Hates is a strong word. Jesus says, everyone practicing evil hates the light. And he uses that word purposely because those who are outside the kingdom hate him. When he says the, the people outside the kingdom hate the light, they mean they hate him. To hate the light is to hate Christ. And so this exposes the lie of the so-called indifferent. Who is the indifferent? That's the person who pretends, you know, I've got no interest in Christ. 
This is the person who says to you, you know what, I admire your faith, but this Jesus stuff, that's not for me. That's, that's a crutch. I don't, I don't need Jesus. But I admire your faith. They don't admire your faith. They hate Christ. There is no middle ground. There is no neutral territory. There is no spiritual Switzerland where I'm staying out of this. There are only two kingdoms. There's no middle ground. You either love Christ or you hate him. You are either saved by him or you're condemned without him. Jesus said, he who is not with me is against me. And why does the unbeliever hate Christ and his light? Verse 20 says the unbeliever, quote, hates the light and does not come to the light. Why? Lest his deeds should be exposed. Now, here's how this verse is usually explained. Many a preacher will explain that the carnal man does not want Christ because he does not want to give up the ways of the flesh. And so rather than give up his carnal pleasures, he will remain in the dark. Why? Because he does not want his deeds exposed. Well, there is certainly truth to that, and every commentator I consulted gave this explanation. But I will suggest that there is something more specific going on here. And in order to understand what that might be, we will need to also look at verse 21. And that is because verses 20 and 21 present a contrast. Notice the first word of verse 21. What is it? But. Verse 21. First word, but. That signals a contrast. A contrast is being made between the people who live in two different kingdoms. A contrast is being drawn between the people of darkness and the people who live in the light of Christ. Let's have a look at 21. But he who does the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be clearly seen that they have been done in God. I submit the key part of this verse is the last clause, the last section of that verse where it speaks of deeds that have been done, quote, in God. That's the key word. These, these deeds have been done in God. Here's why that matters. In the previous verse, it was said that the unbeliever remains in the dark because he does not want his deeds exposed. Then this contrasting verse 21 describes the believer who comes to the light that his deeds may be clearly seen. And why are these deeds willingly, uh, clearly to be seen? It explains right here, according to the last clause, so that it will be evident that these deeds are done in God. Right? In his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said this to believers, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works. Why? To glorify your Father in heaven. You see, as believers, we don't perform our good deeds, our works, in order to gain credit toward heaven. Salvation is by grace. 
We don't do our works to gain credit for heaven. We don't do our good works so that other people will notice, notice us and applaud us. We do our good works to bring glory to God. With this in mind, that the believer's deeds are done in God and for his glory, this helps us to better understand the previous verse, verse 20. Let's look again at verse 20 and focus most of all on the last clause. Verse 20. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light. Why? Lest his deeds should be exposed. Why would those who refuse to believe in Jesus not want their deeds exposed? Well, maybe because they're crummy deeds, uh, philandering or any other lustful ideas, right? But here, I think, is the true reason. In contrast to those who live in the light of Christ and whose deeds bring glory to Christ, those who are without Jesus don't want their deeds exposed because it will become evident to others and especially to themselves that those deeds do not contribute to God's kingdom but are contributing to the kingdom of Satan. Let's not forget to whom this dialogue was originally directed, to Nicodemus. He came as a representative of the Pharisees and of the Sanhedrin. Jesus identified him as the teacher of Israel. He's a representative of what is being taught in Israel. And as a teacher of Israel, Nicodemus believed and taught that the way to heaven was through good works, through his deeds. Even today, the majority of people continue to believe this. They're going to earn enough good, do enough good deeds so that they can tip the scale in their favor. I do so much good stuff that it outweighs the bad stuff I do. Well, then God's going to owe me. He's going to let me into heaven. No. Salvation is by grace, through faith, and not by works. Consider this. Is giving, Jesus said, uh, that is done without him is evil? Is giving food to the hungry evil? Not to the person who's hungry and needs food. No, that's not evil. Is giving clothing to the poor, giving clothing to the poor, is that evil? Not to the person who's receiving those clothes and needs those clothes. But if it is taught or believed that those deeds can earn you a place in heaven, that is evil. Because it's a lie. That's why it's evil. It is evil because that lie will allow many people to think that they're on their way to heaven because of their good works. But in reality, if someone believes their works will earn them a place in heaven, they're actually on the wide road to destruction. Those deeds were not done. These so-called good deeds that are done apart from Christ... They're not done to help that person who's in need. They're certainly not done for God. Who's benefiting? The person who thinks they're doing such a good work that's going to earn them a place in heaven or is going to earn them applause or a a spot in the newspaper to show how all their charitable works have been contributing to the society. That is evil. Because it's done apart from God and apart from his glory. That person does not want their deeds exposed 
because it'll expose their motives that it's not done for God, but for themselves and ultimately for Satan. But those who do take the narrow gate, that narrow gate that leads to life, his deeds can be clearly seen because they're done for God. They're done for Christ and his glory. As we come to the end of this important meeting between Jesus and Nicodemus, we are not told what happened to Nicodemus when he left. I suggested at the beginning of this section, when Nicodemus first came to Jesus, Nicodemus came to challenge Jesus, even to correct Jesus. But what is the state of his heart now that he's leaving? We're not told, not explicitly. But later appearances do give us some strong clues what happened. In chapter 7, we will hear Nicodemus defend Jesus before the Sanhedrin. And even more telling will be a scene that occurs in chapter 19 when Nicodemus, at great risk to his own safety, helps to bury the crucified Christ. It would appear that based on these later appearances that Nicodemus left this meeting a changed man. And it is my prayer that if you have not yet been changed, that you would take to heart the words of Christ, who said, For God so loved the world, that whosoever should believe in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are forever grateful that you gave us your Son. So great is your love for us, and yet some have not fully received your love, a, a love that can only come through Christ. Lord, I pray that that person listening now, who has not yet lifted up Christ in their hearts, would be moved by your Holy Spirit and believe this day and receive the greatest gift that can possibly be given, and that is the assurance of eternal life. Amen.